Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 147. In a cold world, you need your friends to keep you warm. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, it is time for the third in a trilogy of episodes that looks at nostalgia-laden movies. I began this particular set of episodes by looking at American Graffiti which celebrated its 50th anniversary this year and had Rob Kelly on the show for that. Then Amanda came on with me and we talked about Dazed and Confused, which celebrated 30 years this year. And I'm going to wrap this all up by talking about a movie that it is celebrating its 40th anniversary in 2023. The film is 1983's The Big Chill, directed by Lawrence Kasdan and starring Kevin Klein, Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, William Hurt, Jeff Goldblum, Mary Kay Place, Joe Beth Williams, and Meg Tilly. And along with me for this particular adventure is Michael Bailey. The two of us are going to sit down, talk about the film, its stars, its impact on both our parents' generation and our generation, as well as its multi-platinum and iconic oldies and Motown-based soundtrack. And we're going to do it right after these messages. So stick around, and I'll be right back with The Big Chill. Did you know that Michael Bailey hosts a podcast? Yeah, I host or co-host a number of podcasts, actually. Did you know that Michael Bailey releases his podcasts through the dark web? Now, that's not true at all. I release my shows on the regular internet. I don't even know how to get to the dark web. Did you know that Michael's financing comes from shady donors who make up a cabal of people that like to kick puppies and kittens? What are you talking about? I'm pretty much self-financed outside of a modest Patreon that I produce no extra content Did you know that Michael Bailey supports free podcasts for everyone and also works on his shows with potential foreign spies and anarchists? Of course I support free podcasts for everyone. And Andy isn't a spy of any kind. Bethany and Allison are hardly anarchists. And Jeff... Okay, you may have me there. Jeff is a little out there. Why would you support such a man by listening to his podcast? All right, that's enough of that. Can we, can we get rid of creepy voice guy? He, he's not working out. He really just isn't. You can't get rid of me that easily. I'm a scary voice that is meant to frighten people into... Okay, okay, that's that's better. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I run the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. 
The Fortress is a collection of podcasts that I either host or co-host, all housed in a single place to make things easier on me. The shows in the network include From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I host with Jeffrey Taylor, and is all about the Superman books published between 1986 and 2006. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show, which is a Batman podcast that is about Batman stories hardly anyone talks about that I host with Andrew Leyland. Views from the Long Box, my comics-centric podcast that has been online since 2007. And the newest show on the network, The Superman and Lois Tapes, which I host with Allison and Bethany and is all about the CW series Superman and Lois. The network can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com, which also houses one of the web's largest repositories of information on the death and return of Superman from 1992 and 1993. You can subscribe to any of these programs through Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or through your favorite podcatcher, either a la carte or through the Master Feed, which has all of the episodes of all of the shows. The Fortress and its shows are also on Spotify if you're into that sort of thing. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. Doing my best to relieve boredom since 2007. The music on this trailer, Delay Rock, and Political Action Ad are by Kevin McLeod and are used under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Did you know? Oh, shut up! Come in where there's music. Come in where there's laughter. Come in and share the warmth, spaghetti, and wine. Oh, you know, I forgot what this is like. Getting away from you people is the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, how much sex, fun, friendship can one man take? I know that Richard will always be faithful to me. That's nice. Little trust. Fear of herpes. There is a little-known condition that affects all our lives. Symptoms range from lack of coordination to lack of direction to unusually mature behavior. Tell us about big-time journalism. Uh, well, where I work, we have only one editorial rule. You can't write anything longer than the average person can read during the average crap. My clients were the scum of the earth, really extreme repulsivos. Well, who do you think your clients were going to be, grumpy and sneezy? Check your temperature. The ground is ready. I just need someone to plant the seed. Yeah, but who's going to be the lucky farmer? What? You want me to do what? I can always be counted on to do the right thing. It's a disgusting curse. If you feel any of these symptoms... It's about everything. Uh, uh, suicide. Alex and I made love the night before he died. It was fantastic. Despair. You don't know anything about me. For 15 years, you've acted like I'm the one you really wanted. You made sure that everybody knew it. Uh, where did our hope go? Lost hope. That's it. Lost hope. It was easy back then. No one ever had a cushier birth than we did. It's not surprising our friendship could survive that. It's only out here in the world that it gets tough. You may have contracted the big chill. I know, but I'm telling you, I think I've got something good right here. I haven't met that many happy people in my life. How do they act? stars of the 80s in a comedy for all times. Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Mary Kay Place, Meg Tilly, Joe Beth Williams, Lawrence Kasdan's The Big Chill. In a cold world, 
You need your friends to keep you warm. And I'm back. Like I said at the top of the show, this episode is the third in a trilogy of episodes that I've done regarding nostalgia-centered movies. Now, the first two were very straightforward nostalgia. We talked about American Graffiti with Rob Kelly, and I talked about Dazed and Confused with Amanda. This movie is a little bit different in that it takes place in what was then the modern day, but is really steeped in its own kind of sense of the past and nostalgia of the movie is, of course, The Big Chill. And along with me for the ride is somebody who I've had the pleasure of podcasting about nostalgia movies before, because we did Stand By Me and we did Gross Point Blank too many years ago to count. But please welcome yes. back to the show, my friend, uh, podcasting's Michael Bailey. How are you? Oh, oh yeah, I think you, I think the, you owe uh, Alan, Alan a quarter. Yeah, well, yeah uh, Alan a quarter. So. <laughs> So, but no, thank you. Yeah, this is a, uh, it's funny because you, 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 you asked if I'd be interested. I said, yes. And I'm like, why are we, I mean, not like, why are we, no, I know well, why, but it's just like, it's just like, it's weird that we're talking about a movie that is essentially a movie that was more of our parents film. Yeah. Um, but then I realized we're older than the people that are in this film. <laughs> We are. I was trying to do the math on their ages, and I think they're supposed to be like in their mid thirties. Yeah, it's that they're they're not in their forties, close to fifty. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Because I tracked, I tried when I was when I was doing American Graffiti, I did the math on the ages of the characters, and they were essentially like about a year off from like my father and my mother, who were two years apart. And if I can, if I take the math even further, they are essentially like the American graffiti characters in their thirties. So this is my parents. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know when you're, when yours were born. My dad was born in 45 and my mom was 47. So they're very early baby boomers. It, it, it's kind of weird that you say that because my, my, my dad was 44 and my mom was 46. Uh, okay. So. Yeah. So this, <laughs> so we can relate to the, this in some way, but it is kind of funny. Like, what are these two Gen Xers doing talking about a big movie? <laughs> but no, I mean, this, uh, we're going to get into the plot, but I always do like to hear, like, what your origin story, like, what our origin stories with these movies are. And with American Graffiti, for me, it was Lucas, obviously. And Dazed and Confused mm -hmm. was, like, one of the, you know, oh, and then I talked about, like, how it was just, it became, a, like, a, like, a movie you threw in because everybody watched yep. it. This is a little different, so I'll let you go first. Like, what what's your history with the Big Chill? Uh, my mom. Um, <laughs> I sound like Muscle Man from uh, <laughs> the regular show. My mom. <laughs> um, no, my my mother loved movies. Like, she, we had HBO for as long as I could remember because she liked going to movies. She had four kids. So she wasn't going to like to the theater all that often. Um, but this was one of those movies that she loved because it had a bunch of actors that she loved. She loved William Hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, she she loved uh, I think she liked Kevin Klein, too. Uh, but also the soundtrack uh, was a huge part of that, too. Yeah. Uh, and we that was a, in regular rotation in the car. So it was just one of those things when it hit HBO, she watched it again and again and again, and she'd let me watch it with her. Mm. And as like, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, the movie baffled me. I mean, I just, I, I liked the music, but nothing, I could not relate to anything going on on the screen. Um, <clears throat> but 
as I got older and would revisit the film, it would remind me of my mom. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's basically that it is just, it, it had all the actors she liked. Uh, it was very nostalgic for a time period. Uh, you know, she was a boomer too. So, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. It, it's kind of the same with me where this movie in some way or another was a presence, um, around from the time it came out, my parents had the, uh, the soundtrack on cassette. At some point I commandeered that thing and, and wore out what was left of it. Cause it was already pretty worn out. Um, cause my mom especially did love listening to like the oldie station and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but it was, um, now I don't remember my parents watching it. I'm pretty sure they saw it, but you know, I knew it, I knew it, I, I knew about it for years. And then, um, I uh, was always kind of curious about the movie, so uh, I ended up buying a copy. I remember this; it was this. It would have been like the summer or so of '98, because my you're the only person who understands when I go off on these tangents, because like you know exactly where you were and you were doing something, and, and I do too. <laughs> Yet my keys are in the same glass bowl in the in the foyer because I don't want to look for them in the morning. Um, so my video empire was, they were, it was kind of on its last legs. You know, if anybody, anybody who knows anything about the history of video stores knows that like two things killed the mom and pop video store. One was Blockbuster and the other one was the format change to DVD because they couldn't mm -hmm. keep up financially. They were selling off a bunch of pre-owned tapes for about like five bucks a piece. And I remember, I distinctly remember buying Pump Up the Volume and pretty in pink and singles <laughs> like tell you, I'm like, and um, I had, they had the big chill and I was like, well, I've always been interested in this movie. So I have, and I think it's an original release copy of it because it's, uh, it's got the Columbia, you know, it's got the logo on one side, but the Columbia, you know how like some of those movie studios just to put their own like little font or whatever on the side yep. of the, so it's the Columbia thing, which is a red, red border, black box with white letters, but you actually have to open up, it doesn't open from the bottom. You actually have to open up the side of it to take the tape out. Oh, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's not a clamshell. It's it's a it's a cardboard box, but it like folds yeah. in. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it does have the fifty cents charge if tape is not rewound sticker on it, as well as the Video <laughs> Empire sticker. So I'm I've been holding on to this. Um, I did not. By the way, I did not watch the VHS for the for the show. I, I streamed it. Um, it's just too easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and that and like one of the things about this tape is that, you know, it's pan and scan. And it was that really that weird effort that some they did with some home video releases back in the early 80s where they tried to shove as much of the picture in on the screen. So some shots in the movie have that Gumby vision sort of mm -hmm. stretchy stuff. Um, but I do remember watching this for the first time and I was like about a senior in college and got it up until a point. And then, um, so we can we can talk a little bit about this after we or after I do the the plot synopsis and stuff. And then I and I hadn't really watched this movie in at least a good decade, and, and sat down to watch it. And I can tell you, I, I appreciated it a lot more. Um, I do happen to own the so there were two there were two soundtracks. There was uh, the Big Chill, and there was like more music from the Big Chill or something. Because when the first soundtrack was really successful, they got the rights to like the rest of the songs and. and did that. Um, I was in a record store like a year ago or so. 
and was flipping through the used record bin and this and the they had the the big chill soundtrack for three bucks so I, I happen to own it on vinyl the used copy on vinyl I got for three dollars I couldn't pass it up but yeah so I, I was and I wanted to, to include this one partially because this is its 40th anniversary and uh, partially because you know we've done I've done so many of these movies that were flashbacks or, or or were like reunion movies and things like that and like I mentioned Gross Point Blank and Stand By Me and I did the two that I just did and um, I think I think I'm down to like Dirty Dancing and a couple of other films like The Wedding Singer and things that uh, so I've kind of traded in this and and this is a really fascinating type of nostalgia uh, because it's a lot heavier than say um, some of the more comedic stuff that I've seen in these other two movies so um, I'm going to go into a little bit about what you know obviously what the movie was about and, and you know its background. Um, it was written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, who at that point, when it was released in 1983, was known for a couple of pretty small movies. <laughs> he, of yes. course, co-wrote The Empire Strikes Back and then Raiders of the Lost Ark. So this is his directorial debut. Um, he had another big movie uh, come out that year that he co-wrote, which was Return of the Jedi. Funny enough, um, as I was, I was, I was getting into the kind of the weeds on like the background of this movie. Uh, he was involved in the screenwriting of Jedi, but not to the extent of empire, partially because he spent much of 1982 involved in producing and putting and putting together the big chill. So, um, we, mm-hmm. I don't know <laughs> to do that. do with that what you will. Um, I happen to like Return of the Jedi. So, uh, but it was, it was released on uh, September 30th of 1983. It had a budget of only $8 million, which uh, was, you know, still a decent amount for the time. It made $56.3 million at the box office. It was number 13 for 1983. Number 12. Wow. But number 12 at $59.5 was Superman 3. Number fourteen was yeah. Number fourteen was never say never again at fifty five million, and and that doing as well as it did in 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 nineteen eighty three. There there's a I listened to a music podcast mm-hmm. uh, hosted by Chris Malampy, mm. uh, which is really hit good. Hit parade, uh, hit parade. Yeah, you turned me on to. I he, love that show. Yeah, I, when I started listening to it, I'm like, Tom needs this show in his life. Yeah. Uh, but but he did an entire episode on albums and, and that don't that aren't as good as the previous one, but sell more based on the love of the previous one. Mm. And I think Superman three was one of those things. <laughs> it like did very well because everyone liked Superman two, but it wasn't as good of a movie. Yeah, yeah, it's. <laughs> It's flawed. It, it has it has some really great stuff in it, but it's also got some really silliness. And the 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 woman getting eaten by the computer and the transformation like is is just a haunting image that yes. I think we all of our generation has burned into our brains. As, as silly as that movie got, it's like holy shit, that's scary. <laughs> um, yeah, the number one movie of 1983, by the way, was Return of the Jedi with 257.6 million. This is all yeah, this is all domestic box office as recorded by Box Office Mojo. 
Um, one of the interesting things about the making of this movie, uh, before I get into the plot, was that, and you don't usually get this from from a movie production, but Kasdan actually set up to have the entire cast live together in the house where they shot it for a few weeks or so prior to filming, and they all acted in character. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it was. I read an article about it. And I've, and I've read it in the IMDb trivia and everything, but I remember reading an article about this when the movie hit its, I think, 20th or so anniversary, because uh, it was like an Entertainment Weekly back when I was uh, when I was getting that regularly. And I remember two things about that. I remember they were talking about how they lived together and they were they were acting like the characters. And then I remember they also mentioned that they played a ton of Trivial Pursuit. I don't know why that stuck out, probably because I have... 20 something versions of trivia pursuit in this house. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say that was, that was a thing you did in the eighties. Yes. My family played trivial pursuit all the time. Oh, I have, so. I have memories of, um, like labor day barbecues and like, you know, the things would kind of move into the inside after it got like really dark and my dad and my mom and their friends and like, you know, maybe eight or nine adults not playing using the board, just kind of taking points like playing for points and and passing the cards around and just reading them off. And I remember like, you know, being the nerd that I am, even at that young age, being like, I want to join. So when the young player edition came out, I was like, I was, I, I begged for, I got it. I, I, I've played a lot of it in my time. So, um, but yeah, so uh, they, you know, they filmed the movie and everything and um, it, it did really well. Um, obviously the, the um, reviews, um, it got, you know, quite a number of, of good reviews. The funny, one of the funnier ones is um, Roger Ebert actually gave it two and a half stars and said, the big chill is a splendid technical exercise. It has all the right moves. It knows all the right words. Its characters have all the right clothes, expressions, fears, lusts, and ambitions, but there's no payoff and it doesn't lead anywhere. I thought at first that was the weakness of the movie, there is also the possibility that it's the movie's message. And uh, I thought that was a, a pretty interesting yeah. look because I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. All right. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm cribbing the plot synopsis, by the way, from Wikipedia, just <laughs> just for the um, just for the sake of me uh, having not enough time to write a full synopsis on my own. So credit where credit is due. So um, after Alex Marshall, who is, by the way, played by the body of Kevin Costner, it's one of the most well-known trivia bits of the entire movie. Apparently, they did shoot scenes with him as Alex, but they decided to cut the flashbacks out and just keep it to present day. Um, you can tell it's him in one shot because you can see the hairline. And Kevin Costner has a pretty distinct hairline even back in the early 1980s. So. Anyway, uh, he dies by suicide. His fellow University of Michigan alumni and close friends attend his funeral at the Title Home Plantation in Beaufort, South Carolina. And during the visit, everyone stays with Sarah and Harold Cooper. Sarah is played by Glenn Close and Harold is played by Kevin Klein. Uh, their other friends include Sam Weber, who's played by Talon Berenger, and he's a television actor on a show called J.T. Lancer. Think Simon and Simon, but like crossing over with Magnum PI. Yeah. Cause he's giving like Tom Selleck as if he were Simon in a sense, because uh, it was, it, there's a little bit of a Southern aspect to the intro, the fake intro they showed to the thing. 
<laughs> I also kept calling it TJ Laser, but that's the show in RoboCop. So yeah, I was about to say, I, I was thinking TJ Laser in my head, and I'm like, no, that, that's Robocop. not right. It's not... <laughs> uh, Meg Jones, who was once a public defender, is now a real estate attorney, uh, played by Mary Kay Place. Michael Gold is a journalist for People Magazine, is played by Jeff Goldblum. Former talk radio psychologist Nick Carlton, uh, now an impotent Vietnam vet with a drug addiction, played by William Hurt. And Karen Bowen, who is played by Jo Beth Williams, she is an unfulfilled writer unhappily married to Richard, a conservative advertising executive. Also present is Chloe, who is played by Meg Tilly, um, and she's Alex's younger girlfriend. Uh, she's been his girlfriend for about four months. She's like in her early 20s, I believe. I think she's at one point, I think she says she's 24, but she's significantly younger than all the characters. While out jogging early the next morning, Harold, who is violating SEC rules, by the way, tells Nick that a large corporation is about to buy out his small company. It'll make him rich, triple the value of the stock. He told Alex, making it possible for him to buy the property in the area. Harold suggests Nick uses the tip to get into a new line of work. During their conversation, it's revealed that Sarah and Alex had had a brief affair five years earlier, which all the friends knew about. Nick comforts Harold by saying she did not marry Alex. Harold, Sarah, and Alex moved past it, but Sarah tells Karen her friendship with Alex was harmed by the affair. Richard goes home the next day. Karen stays. Harold, Nick, and Michael and Chloe drive out to see the old house that Chloe and Alex were renovating. Meanwhile, Meg tells Sarah she's fed up with failed relationships and intends to have a child on her own. Believing she is ovulating, she plans to ask Sam to be the father of her child. She approaches Nick first, but he, then she ends up becoming the last person out of everybody to know that he is impotent. Michael, who continuously flirts with Chloe, and we'll talk about how much of a skis uh, Jeff Goldblum's character yeah. is in this movie. Michael uh, needs investors for a New York nightclub. At dinner, Sarah becomes tearful and wonders if their fervent 60s idealism was, quote, just fashion. Later that night, Meg approaches Sam, but he declines, feeling his fatherhood is too great a responsibility as he already has an estranged child. Nick shares his drugs with varying effects. The next day, Harold gets everybody running shoes. Nick goes to the old house and sits on the porch for hours and misses the Michigan football game. Michael offers to sire Meg's child, alluding to their one-time encounter in college. During a halftime game of touch football, a local police officer escorts a sullen Nick back to the house after he runs a red light and becomes belligerent. Recognizing Sam, the officer offers to drop the charges if he will hop into Nick's Porsche 911 the way that J.T. Lancer does on TV. Sam tries and fails and injures himself. Nick angers Harold by accusing him of being friendly with cops. Harold chastises Nick, reminding him that this is his home and Nick's recklessness could put his reputation in danger. Karen tells a surprise Sam that she is in love with him and wants to leave Richard. He tells her his first marriage failed because of boredom and he does not want her to make the same mistake. Feeling let on, Karen angrily stop, stomps off. Meg tells Sarah that Michael is the wrong choice. Sarah observes the warm phone conversation between her young daughter and Meg, and later the group, confused over Alex's death, regrets losing touch with him. To everyone but Sam, it seemed that Alex withdrew deliberately. Nick is particularly cynical and bitter about life, love, and friendship. Karen follows Sam outside to mollify him, and they have sex. 
Sarah pulls Harold aside, embracing him, telling him she has a favor to ask. She says, it's about Meg. Meg goes to him and they, um, they have sex that evening. Chloe asks Nick to spend the night in the room she shared with Alex. The next morning, Harold announces that Nick and Chloe stay on to, will stay on to renovate the old house. Karen packs to return home to Richard. Michael ditches his nightclub plans. Nick shows everyone an old column that Michael wrote about Alex declining a prestigious fellowship. And as the friends prepare to depart, Michael jokingly tells the Coopers they have taken a secret vote and they are never leaving. And so that is Wikipedia did a pretty good job with the summary. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's just like the other two I did. It is not a plot driven movie. There is a plot, but the whole movie is it's an ensemble cast. And it's the interaction between these characters. It is a sitting, it's essentially a sitting and talking movie. And so you're really not necessarily watching it for the plot. You're watching it for the character. And before we get into like what we thought of it, I do want to make sure that I define the phrase, the big chill, which according to uh, Lawrence Kasdan is about a cooling process that takes place for every generation when they move from the outward directly more idealistic concerns of their youth to a kind of self-absorption of self-interest, which places their personal desires above those of society or even an ideal. The cold world of adult reality after leaving the warm embrace of the friendship during college. I think John Hughes would later say, when you grow up, your heart dies. So that's basically what the big chill is. Yeah. And I would say Gen X went through that, but we, uh, we just couldn't be bothered. Mm. Um, so we, we were, we were, we were disillusioned way before okay. getting out of college. So yeah. some of us, so a certain portion of our generation was disillusioned before we left high school. I mean, yeah, so. the early days just were rough. <laughs> um, yeah, so you had said something on Facebook. We were messaging back and forth, and I really loved what you said. It was like you couldn't make a movie like this that's just like this nuanced these yeah. days. And I agreed yeah. with you. There, there is a lot going on in this film that, as a as a teenager and as a as a guy in my early twenties when I watched it, I was just like, how could any of that happen? And now, as a guy, you know, barreling towards fifty, I'm like. Oh yeah, all of this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of this makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's what's interesting because I was thinking about like because um, when I when I was uh, looking at um, Days and Confused, I asked Amanda like, could you fill this movie today? Like, what would it look like? What would a movie about today be twenty years from now? Blah blah blah. This I was thinking like you wouldn't have to change much of the premise to actually film the movie today. But the thing is, I kept thinking about the way movies like this tend to be nowadays and you know this movie has actors who i think william hurt was probably the most recognizable person in the film in 1983 because he had done body heat with cast it so this was Kasdan's second movie i'm sorry body Heat came out in 81 i know that like actors like jeff goldblum had made appearances in places and kevin klein but they were kind of still hey it's that guy type of people and Berenger, who we both were like, is unrecognizable. Completely unrecognizable. Yeah. Like, because when I think of Tom Berenger, I think of like the substitute, yeah. and I think of, like of like and Major Lee. Yeah. And in this, he's a pretty boy. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, even in Eddie and the Cruisers, he has like a baby face. And you're like, yes, I've yeah, never yeah. seen him look that young. And he is, he is this, he is, he is a very good, he's really good at giving like early 80s Selleck in the way mm-hmm. that he has yeah. to. But yeah, so you had a cast of not complete unknowns, but relatively, you know, obscure actors with the exception of William Hurt. And you have a feel and dialogue that is really just feels authentic in a way that movies nowadays don't necessarily do. I think this movie shot now or written now would have a lot of monologuing in a way that this doesn't have a ton of monologuing or it would be in love with its own dialogue. Like it would have quirky language in it. It, There's just, there's something about certain movies these days where it's like the screenwriter's a little too up his own ass. Um, And I think this is, this would be that movie. A good example of that is I, I, I tried to watch Licorice, Pe- Licorice, Pe- Licorice, Licorice Pizza, Pizza mm-hmm. when I was when I had a uh, covid because uh, I had time because mm-hmm. I couldn't I had to I had to go to the other end of the house. I couldn't be around Rachel. Yeah. I couldn't be around <clears throat> the dogs, really. Um, and. Paul Thomas Anderson, like like I get it's his aesthetic, but everybody is up their own ass and he just lingers on shots mm-hmm. for like hours. And here you have, you usually when people say, uh, especially people our age, but like they couldn't make movies like that anymore. It's not like, you know, blazing saddles or something where you're dealing in a sense of humor that may not play nowadays. I think there was such an earnestness to this film that it wasn't them lost in their past. It was them trying to figure out what the hell happened. Mm-hmm. Not only to Alex, but to like, like how did we get from the idealistic kids who went on marches and, you know, they, they don't really go into what happened to Nick, but he went to Nam. Yeah. And that's where that's where his injury happened. So but none of them feel like they're having existential dread. But at the same time, they're all just kind of trying. They all have lives, except maybe Nick. Uh, but that's that's the shtick there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to a certain extent, they're unfulfilled in certain areas, mm-hmm. but it's not like, uh, oh, let's go back to that time period. It's how do we relate to each other now? Yeah, there's a uh, um, so people who people who follow Mad Men know uh, know the line I'm about to say there's or, or the definition. And, and so it's Stella because she's a classicist. But nostalgia is a Greek word. And it literally means the pain from an old wound. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was part of John Hamm's monologue in that great scene in the first season of Mad Men where he does the carousel presentation. This really personifies that idea because, you know, American graffiti has its dark side and Dazed and Confused kind of has a twinge of it as well. It's just kind of the lost aspect of it. But neither of them go that dark or really address it head on. This, I think, really takes that to heart. And 
there is a sense of that, like with Alex's death, they all are kind of waking up at one moment. Like, how did we get here? Especially mm-hmm. like, like Meg was a public defender at one point, And then she's like, they, she moved to Atlanta to become a real estate lawyer because it was like, basically they made me an offer. I couldn't refuse to quote another movie. Like she's basically the money was too good. Karen's husband is like, a haircut. <laughs> yeah, he's not a bad guy. No, he's, he's just, just boring. He's a stick in the mud, basically, but he's a lot more buttoned up conservative. He's very much the, the that early 80s Reagan conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and all of them, like Harold, uh, Harold is a successful, a really successful businessman, especially for somebody who the age of his mid 30s you know, running the store and everything, but he's now he's concerned about his standing like in the town. Cause that's the conversation he has with like, Nick's the only person who's kind of stayed stuck in that. And per, probably Alex, you know, they, they, I like the fact that they left Kevin Costner's scenes out and yes, it's nothing yeah. against Costner. It's because they, you have to characterize Alex through the lens of the other characters. And I think that makes it really, really effective. Another thing is I think Costner would have looked really young compared to these guys. Yeah, he was, uh, I don't know how old he was, but in, in the early eighties, Costner, he did, he looked like, cause he's in Testament, which came out around yeah. the same year. And he looked like a baby in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause two years after this, Cash would write Silverado mm-hmm. and he looked like a baby in that film. Yeah. Uh, of course, when you're next to, to, to Scott Glenn, it's kind of hard not to look young. Uh, <laughs> Even at that time, Scott Glenn um, looked old in Nashville, and that was in 1975. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, nothing against the guy; mm-hmm. he's, he's a fantastic actor, but he 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 was grizzled <laughs> well ahead of time. Um, what did you think of Kevin Klein's? I was going to ask you the same thing. It <laughs> kind of comes and goes a little bit. He he tries to commit as best he can. It's it's not. He's Kevin Klein, so he's really good in the movie. Oh yeah, like everybody and, is, and he plays, and he plays a character. So I'm so used to seeing him play more silly characters, mm-hmm. like um, a fish called Wanda. He won an Oscar for a fish yeah. called Wanda, and he's fucking hilarious in that movie. He played, uh, he played bottom. Yeah, he played Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the, the 1999 film version with like Christian Bale and Calista Flockhart and Rupert Everett and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and such. Um, and, and, and I've seen him in other, other movies where he is a little, he goes for, leans into the comedic. Here he's kind of supposed to be the, the rock yeah. type of character, the, the one that's sturdy and steady. And he's not stuffy or stuck up or or boring, but he's definitely the steady guy out of everybody. And I'm not used yeah, to, funny, not used to seeing him play that type of character all the time. Because Tom Berenger is the actor mm-hmm. uh, who I, I have to give it to both Cashton as the writer and Berenger as the performer that he never comes up as stuck up to his friends. You get the sense that he gets to be himself around these people because they know him and would probably call him on his bullshit. Oh, they give him such a hard time too. Yeah. Uh, and he's very embarrassed when they call him in to watch the opening to the TV <laughs> show. 
Uh, which again, if, if, if I had friends that did that, uh, that if I had a friend that ended up like on a successful TV show, I would do the same damn thing. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, you, you have, you have, have Goldblum who is just smarmy, mm-hmm. um, in a kind of endearing way. Cause it's Goldblum and he, he exudes a certain kind of charm no matter what character he's playing. But you're right about Harold is that he's like, he's like the leader of the group mm-hmm. in a certain way. Um, and you get to see the cracks in it with his conversation with Nick about Sarah and Alex's affair. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the things that really stood out to me now is that, you know, usually in these movies, an affair is treated as like this, like like this high drama, and here it's presented as this low level thing in the background. Mm-hmm. Like they obviously Sarah and him have a good relationship. They have a couple kids. They have like fifteen houses apparently. <laughs> um, but and but he's still kind of insecure about a dead man, and it takes Nick to say, well, she married you. And I was just like, that is such an adult line. That is just, it, it, like those conversations were what made this film work for me because in my personal life, I'm not going to get into like too many specifics, but there is a lot of stuff going on that both is upsetting in the lives of my friends but at the same time, I'm like, no, this is how real life goes, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's depressing, but it, it's just like these things happen. So seeing this film now, I'm like, it's a bunch of people dealing with these things happen. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that helps is I, I can, you know, I have friends like that where, where you you don't I'm, I'm distant from a number of them because we're all over the East Coast. And get us together for a night for dinner and you start to slip back into those old patterns as you do. Mm-hmm. This allows that some room to breathe because um, first of all, they're at a funeral for their friends. So it's thought the pallor is already there, but then they're staying mm-hmm. a whole weekend. So the, <clears throat> the fun of slipping back to those old patterns happens and it comes and goes and then it really settles in and we get to see it develop like organically over the course of, I think what's supposed to be about two or three days. Um, and you know, talk about the, the affair I, I thought, cause it was, I think he mentioned it was like five years ago or something. And so it certainly is in the past and there's no yelling scene in the movie about it, which is great. Mm-hmm. But, um, so the movie did, I, I failed to mention, the movie did get nominated for a few Oscars. Um, let's get the thing up here. Uh, best Picture, uh, best, best Original Screenplay, um, written directly for the screen, and then Best Supporting Actors for Glenn Close, who is, I mean, Glenn, I'm amazed Glenn Close does not have an Oscar anyway. She's phenomenal in anything. Yeah. She's so good in this movie. And her, her acting of a woman who is doing her best to keep it together in front of everybody. But then there's that scene where she's in the shower. Yeah. Tears because of Alex and, and how it is in the background. And she's like, she's in the background suffering 
And we'll talk about the end later, but it kind of informs the end of the movie, which I didn't get the first time around. But I think when you're 21 and watching this movie, you don't get that whole scene. Um, no. But yeah, she is just uh, so she is pretty steady as well. And I like that about her. But she has this sort of it's almost like a smolder that really gets, um, you know, that really gets to you because she's not simply like the mom, you know, <laughs> there's a lot more going on there. Yeah. It's, it was interesting watching her. Cause you would, th it's, it's weird to think like two or three years later, she'd be in attraction. fatal attraction. Yeah. Um, and so it's weird seeing her as like mom. And then as kind of, I don't want to say sex pot. Cause that's, that's kind of a loaded term, mm -hmm. but she was definitely more of a sexy, albeit mentally unwell character mm -hmm. in, in fatal attraction where uh, we're here. I'm like you that it's the scene in the shower that always stands out with me uh, because one, it's weird when there's random nudity in a film Yes, but it's not like salacious or anything. It's just, it, I think in, in, in that scene, it was meant to show vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and two, just, just her sobbing to herself and really her trying to keep her shit together throughout the entire weekend mm -hmm. and not always succeeding. Um, but still having fun with her friends. Yeah. Um, so, it, and again, we, we talk about how films would be this way. She, that would be like her entire character in, 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 in a, in a film like that made today where it would just be her and there would be a screaming match yes. about the, the affair. Yes. Um, cause you have to have that, yeah. you know, so I'm not saying it would be like an A24 film, but it would definitely be a Fox searchlight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the the other the other really great moment with her is toward the right before the movie's third act where she's watching uh, Meg have this conversation with her daughter on the phone and she's yeah. being you know and she's and she's just looking and then she's it Harold's like in the room and there's nothing interesting going on in that scene right it's just it's a very mundane moment you know you know there's there's a little bit back and forth between her and harold and stuff but she's just kind of staring at them and she has this very subtle smile on her face and she she acts so well you know the camera kind of zooms in on her a little bit and it's just you can see her realizing well we don't know what she's going to ask him yet either but you can see him see her kind of putting it all together what she will you know she'll ask harold to do for her um and I just, again, I, I think that's, that's brilliant as well. Um, to briefly go back to J uh, Jeff Goldblum, because I found the line that my, one of my favorite lines in the movie is where I work, we have only one editorial rule. You can't write anything longer than the average person can read during the average crap. <laughs> so, yeah. But he is, he is very like proto Ian Malcolm in this movie. And that's funny, but yeah, then, but you have, um, her and then you have uh Mary Kay Place, who I funny enough first saw and I might have seen her in something else, but I have always recognized her from she had a supporting role in my so called life back in the nineties. She was uh oh, she was okay. Sharon Chersky's mom, so she was the best friend of Bess Armstrong's uh mom character, Patty Chase. 
And um, she, I mean, I've seen her in other stuff and, and she is great. And she, um, I think she was the one who's, she was smoking, I think. Yeah, she was, and, she's smoking throughout this entire film. Merit, which is which funny. Is, yeah. <laughs> it's the 80s. It's the early 80s. We weren't completely there yet. Um, she was smoking. The funny thing was, is I recognized a pack of Merit cigarettes. That was my dad's brand before he gave up smoking. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, my mom was a Marlboro person until <laughs> literally the day she died. Yeah, so. so, well, maybe about 30 days before mm-hmm. that, but still. Um, so yeah, that <laughs> it's funny watching, going back and watching movies like this where everybody's smoking mm-hmm. because it's, it's it, like, <clears throat> this, this is a weird tangent. Like a, I was watching that Soleil Moon Fry documentary. Oh, Kid 90? I don't know. If, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Uh, and like everybody in the home videos was smoking. Mm-hmm. And then I realized like, I was like one of the few people especially in my friends group when I moved to Georgia that didn't smoke. Same here. Like every, and now it, it's, it, 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 it's still a thing obviously, cause it's not like tobacco companies are going out of business, but it is not as like just lighting up in somebody else's kitchen is weird to see now. Yeah. Yeah. Because now it would be like you would step outside to have the smoke because not everybody in the room smokes, but it's the 80s. So, so <laughs> we're just going to let this happen. I will I will add to that in saying that I had a note in here. You know, we talk about the big movies from the 80s that and let's put aside the sci-fi and the adventure ones. But let's look at like your your John Hughes movies or Back to the Future and mm-hmm. stuff. This film is more 80s than any of them. It is so like, mm-hmm. God, the the mem- like I was just like, holy shit. I, I wrote, I am probably going to spend as much time looking at the fashion decor and scenery of this movie as I am the actual plot. And I'm like, they're in the supermarket. And I'm doing that thing where you check out the stuff on the shelves. So I'm like, oh, there's pudding pops. Mm-hmm. But it, it feels very, very lived in as the world of the 80s. It was contemporary then, so they didn't really have to costume it up. But I was just like, holy crap. But yeah, the behaviors and things and the and the just all of the little the little details in the um in the background. And it, it feels very much like that. Um, even even the way she is dressed as a professional lawyer is that sort of very conservative weirdly school marmy <laughs> fashion. <laughs> yeah. She's like five seconds away from shoulder. Yeah. Pads. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not there mm-hmm. yet, but you, you get the feeling that Meg would have worn shoulder pads later in the years. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, but uh, her storyline, I'm going to put a pause on that because uh, it is important to the very, very end of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I do want to talk about um, Nick for a little bit. Cause William Hurt, William Hurt passed away a few years ago, I believe. And a lot of MCU fans, people now know him as uh, General Thaddeus Ross in the MCU. But he was mm-hmm. he was one of the bigger names in prestigious acting roles in the 80s. He was like in Kiss of the Spider Woman and a couple of other films. and Broadcast, broadcast News. Broadcast News, yeah. Um, Good movie. My, my mom loved him in uh, The Doctor. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, that one. And- that's actually where she also got into Jimmy Buffett again, because mm. uh, of the him playing that at the beginning of the film. Uh, the fact that she had cancer the year before that movie came out probably also yeah. had something to do with that. But yeah, he, 
he's like one of those guys you look at his his he is not like the physical chameleon like Vigo Mortensen mm-hmm. is though ironically they were in a film together but his characters are all different like the, he is he is really good at just becoming something else like when you said kiss of the spider woman like when you think of kiss of the spider woman and then you think of this and then you think of broadcast news those three people have nothing in common well, yeah like uh, his character in body heat is is mm-hmm. much different but he he embodies this this nick character as this he and this is what i like about it too you were talking about how sarah would have been the, the you know the whole thing would have been the affair he is the guy who went to Nam. He is really messed up, but he is not a hundred percent a sad sack. He he mm-hmm. he still has something to him. He's way more three dimensional. I think that's one of the that's one of the things about this movie. Nobody feels they all have sort of roles in the group, but nobody is one dimensional. Where they're the you know they are their defined role, and you know his again he doesn't really talk about Vietnam very much. No. And I think that's important too. You know, my dad never really talked about Nam. No, neither did my dad. I've heard like three things. It seems to be coming out a little bit more here and there as he gets older, but back in the, you know, I mean, I was a little kid. I was six years old when this movie came out, so I wouldn't have heard him talk about Vietnam back then, but I would imagine that, he probably really didn't talk about it very much. And, and I think that tracks with a lot of, you know, what I've read and what I've seen in other media. And so him really being broken in a number of ways because of what happened, we don't need the tiger cage flashback, right? We don't, we don't need the, we don't need the deer hunter. We don't, we don't, we, we, we get it. And the, the impotence is a little too on the nose sometimes. Um, I think it helps with the plot along because of Meg and, and Howard or Harold, sorry, at the end. But, um, but yeah, he, I, I think that again, his performance is subtle enough that we can get everything that we need out of it. You, you, you got the sense that he was listless even back in college mm-hmm. and like going to Nam didn't help that. And, you know, as they kind of parse out his, his life, like he, he does something that he moves on. He does something that he moves on. Uh, like he was, a, he was a radio psychologist in San Francisco. Uh, I think it was, yeah. if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, and then he just stopped. And it's just like, you get the feeling that this guy is constantly looking for something. And I think, Everybody has a friend in their group, especially, you know, if you you get to know your high school and college friends beyond high school and college, everybody has that guy that just kind of floats through life in a really kind of weird way. Uh, And I I agree with you. I'm glad that he doesn't have a breakdown at any certain time. They they all have a big argument. Yeah. uh, But. Even then, it was basically them kind of calling him on his bullshit, yeah. but Michael's there, so you have to call Michael on his bullshit, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at least Nick's bullshit is coming from a more honest place than just... Nick is realistically cynical, where Michael is just, like, obnoxiously cynical. Yeah, yeah. And, and his... And Nick's 
Nick's distance from the group is evident from the very, very beginning of the movie. I think he shows up late, if I'm remembering. Yeah, he's... With- in the porch, which is kind of on its last legs too. He hasn't been in touch with them as much, or he, he's just, he is on the outside at the beginning, which I think is um, well played as well. And it's, it's apparent from the very beginning that he's a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he, they, they, they spill out into the car. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, there's a lot of showing and not telling mm-hmm. in this movie that uh that i really appreciate it because it kind of left it to you to kind of put all the dots together and again not have that oh well you're a drug at well they can't say that because they all get high at one point yeah Um, because they're children of the 60s so that makes sense (laughs) but he um he eventually connects with chloe who is played by meg tilly the sister of jennifer tilly who became a um Jennifer Tilly is known for her horror stuff, especially like the Chucky yeah. movies. Uh, Meg, I, I've seen, I, I know there was a movie that she did in 85 called Agnes of God because it used to run on Channel 11 a lot. Oh my God, did it run <laughs> on Channel 11 a lot? I can distinctly remember the commercials they used to play too. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're not, you're not like lying at all, all there. Uh, at yeah. all. <laughs> so, um, but she, so she's 24, still kind of a kid. Yeah. And what I like is that she is, she's not the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, it's like she shouldn't feel like she belongs there, but she does because she just spends a lot of time watching them. And she's obviously much younger than them, uh, which, is kind of, you know, which makes you wonder, you know, what was up with Alex? Well, yeah. Uh, so, and it's like, you know, Goldblum goes after her hard. Uh, and she really just doesn't. The one she responds to is Nick. And Nick's the one that can't do what Michael wants to do. And I and I'm wondering what is this girl's backstory? <laughs> what happened to her? <laughs> and she gives at one point, she, she connects with Nick and I know they have a conversation where she said she actually called into her, his show. So you got the sense that she had some, some stuff in the past. I don't think it's spelled out exactly. Um, and she is a bit of an outsider, but like she, she makes her way into the group, especially I think the, the turning point for Chloe is the football, the, the halftime touch football game they play in the yard where they yeah. seem to be more welcoming. And prior to that, they're kind of like letting her be there, but she's getting a lot of side eye and, and yeah. comments. And she is kind of this reflection of what Alex's immaturity was because you get the feeling that Alex was just as messed up as Nick, but in a different mm-hmm. manner as well. And, and unfortunately got kind of consumed, got consumed by his, his, uh, his demons as they were, um, which we never get specifically into either. And again, I think that was, that was really good. But um, I, I like the fact that Chloe and Nick are two pretty damaged people who do find one another. And I like that toward the end when she wants him to spend the night with her, 
he's like, you know, I can. And she's, she just basically says, that's not the point, you know? And, yeah. And I, I thought that was a really nicely done scene. Cause it shows this, it shows maturity that we up to that point really didn't see from her. Uh, so she's becoming a little more vulnerable and you can see that she's actually a lot, a lot wiser than, than we were giving her credit for as an audience too. Well, to be fair, she was, I don't, I wouldn't say she was ditzy, no. but there was kind of a flighty quality to her. Mm-hmm. Like she, they would ask her questions and she would give kind of weird answers. Yeah. So the side eye was kind of warranted, but you got the sense that she was just looking for an intimacy uh, with somebody she could trust. And damaged people tend to find damaged people. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think one of the things that they don't really come out and say is that there, but for the grace of God, Nick is Alex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I, I think that's why when they all have that big argument towards the end of the film, uh, he's the one that is most not angry, but kind of like, flat about the whole thing Mm -hmm. um which you know they're all trying to make sense of it and i think to nick it makes perfect sense Uh, and he's wondering why almost to a certain extent why it doesn't make sense to everybody else well and i think that maybe the only other character or uh, i think harold fully understands it because he does the very illegal thing of offering nick an insider trading tip which he did to Alex because he probably sees that. Um, but it, his, his way of it is being, being dad and helping, you know, yeah. not really addressing the thing. It's just, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to help you, which, um, which is also a very male thing to do, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we always have, he buys everybody a pair, he gets pair everybody shoes. a pair of shoes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and he's not, doing it to be a rich asshole. That's the other thing. He's not doing it to show up. You can tell he's doing it out of this, this genuinely like, um, uh, there's something very genuine behind it. He's just, because I'm going to get my friends all a gift and I own a shoe company. And it's like, Hey guys, like, you know, I got you all these shoes and stuff. And, um, so that's, I thought that was, uh, I, I really liked like that aspect of it. So let's, uh, let's talk about you, about Karen, Joe Beth Williams, mm-hmm. who I'm watching this movie, and I know you've, I, I, I think you have said this before. How hot is she? <laughs> My God in heaven, Jesus Christ, she is, she is attractive in this film. Because she's in Poltergeist um, the year before, and she's, you know, she's going to that, but this is like, oh my God. Yeah, and I was trying not to focus on that because, you know, we're we're getting a little older yeah. and there is something kind of eh, about just like con- constantly pointing out, um, you know, how, oh, like, you know, the chick, that man, that chick is hot. But watching this, I'm just like, you know, like it's it's a film full of very attractive yeah. women. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Uh, even Mary Kay Place, who is not maybe more traditionally beautiful by Hollywood standards. Uh, she has that eighties like attractiveness going mm-hmm. for her, but Joe Beth Williams in this is just like, she is just way too good for this Richard guy. Yeah. He lucked out. 
he lucked out in a way that I think he understands. And there's this weird, like she's obviously feeling, uh, not lost, but unfulfilled in her own life. Um, and you see her like work through that, through the weekend and apparently nailing your actor, uh, <laughs> friend is, is one of the ways you work through that. But it's just like, there's a lot unspoken to this film. Like when Richard's leaving, it's almost just like, you're going to fuck this guy. Aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, you know, funny thing is, is like I like I said, it, it'd been a very long time since I watched this movie. And in my head, the person who goads Sam into jumping into the car is Richard. And no, it's the cop. And, and, and yeah. although the funny thing is, if this were shot today, Richard would have been the one to goad Sam into the car. And I think that's why I've watched too, this mm-hmm. too many times. Yeah, um, Richard is just Richard was stability. You know, Richard is um Richard's kind of Harold in a sense that he is but just more yeah boring. more boring like but that I mean in her mind that's the premise of marrying Richard he is steady um and and he is boring and he's got that yeah, but 80s haircut um but all at the same time you know this is this is the early 80s you know and how many people got divorced in from mm-hmm. the in, through the late seventies into the early to mid eighties and uh, through that decade, it was um, I, I don't have figures in front of me, but like I know at least you know a number of uh, people I went to school with had you know were going back and forth between two houses at different points. They had step parents and things, and they were all around this age, you know. Um, so she's reflecting something that was happening in the culture and, and the sort of unfulfillment that comes with hitting this point in your, in your thirties. Now the middle, the midlife crisis for men becomes a joke as you go through this decade. And when the man hits around our age, actually the forties and fifties, it's all of a sudden, you know, you get a convertible, a hairpiece and a 20 year, 23 year old blonde, you know, like, and that's the, that became the joke. But, here it's a very real thing where like clearly she's unfulfilled and you're right. Richard kind of knows what he's, she's going to do, but maybe that deep down Richard kind of knows that you're right. He got lucky and it's, it's not working. He, I also dug into the actor. He was on Ironside for crying out mm. loud in the sixties. So he's like a good 10 years older than her. The, like the actors got, have like an 11 year age mm. gap so it's almost like she not only found somebody steady, she found somebody like from a little before her time yeah. almost. Uh, and he's got a, I, I have to say Richard, uh, there's a lot of these movies where like the, the husband or whatever comes off as like a complete jerk and he never falls into no. that. Um, he's a little gawk, a little gawky around Sam, but you know, him and his son watch Sam's show. So it's gotta be weird when they're suddenly in front of you in a really like a super social <laughs> and very sad situation. But when they're all like eating in the kitchen, it's actually a really good scene where like the guys are just trying to, 
like he's just trying to figure out what's going on and the guys are just kind of talking to him. And, and it's like that when you, when you have a group like this, uh, that's, re- that was really close at some point and there's men and women in the group. I think you'd almost want to kind of interrogate the guy that married one of your, one of your female friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Just to see, is like, is he up to snuff? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, especially if because sometimes when those um, those friends, those uh, outsiders is not the great best word, but it's it's late in my vocabulary is is draining. Sometimes those outsiders become part of that group because of how long you've known the person, you know, and and such. So, yeah, it it eventually I get the feeling that that never happened with him that they haven't known him well enough or long enough um, for whatever reasons, you know, and I don't think it's anything like entirely negative, but you're right. He's not a cad, you know? And, and I think that again, like this is just, it's, it's both Kasdan's writing and directing. And it's the performances that like make these characters so lived in that there's not a lot of, real cheese or anything like that that's going on in this movie and i think it it makes it it gives it that nuance and depth that you were talking about in the comment you made one of the things about karen though for me is she she makes a play for sam sam kind of rebuffs her she gets really agitated and then they end up having sex uh, by the way, looking like to be some of the most uncomfortable mm-hmm. sex on the face of the planet. It's like out, it's like, like out on the front lawn, and they both are mostly clothed. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> guys. There's like there's fifty beds in this room, <laughs> yeah. in this house. Um, but then the next, and they're talking about like what they could do and such. But then the next morning, she's like, "Hey, if we came out, do you guys think? Do you think you'd get us on the set?" And you 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 get the feeling that. I had a friend that had good friend of mine that was with, was with a woman, but there was this other girl he was kind of interested in. Now we were all in our like early to mid twenties at uh-huh. this point. So it wasn't like, like now. Yeah. And he ended up making out with her and he said that took care of like all of the issues he was having. Now it wasn't like the best thing to do, but I think it's just something both of them needed to do just to get it out of their system. Just to realize, yeah, this is a nice pipe dream, but eh, I don't know if the <laughs> in the cold light of morning that this is going to work out. And I don't condone cheating on your husband. Yeah. Um, it's, it's polyamorous, rela- polyamorous relationships are fine as long as everybody's on board with it. Um, but at the same time, it seems like it's what she needed to kind of not accept her life, but just to realize, yeah, that's a nice, that's a nice fantasy, but I don't know if that's going to work out. I think I need to go home to my husband. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the conversation they have is they talk around that. And Mm -hmm. I think that's how it would have gone. I've never cheated on my wife, so I wouldn't know, but (laughs) uh, but it it feels like that's how it would have gone. And, and you, it reflects a few other things that are going on in the movie. We will talk about Harold and Meg in a moment, but it it kind of, in in a sense, kind of reflects Sarah's affair with Alex years ago. Yeah. Um, 
because Sarah and Alex, uh, Sarah and Karen have a conversation about that at one point too. And, um, it, it, like we were saying earlier, over the course of the movie, we are getting how much it is eating away at her. Um, you know, and with Karen, it's, it's almost like she saw her friend had that chance. And I don't think she was jealous over her not ever taking that chance or whatever, but there was certain, a certain something in the back of her mind about it when she was eyeing Sam. Um, mm -hmm. no, no, nobody sleeps with Michael. <laughs> nobody. Well, that's because, I mean, one of the, one of, one of the, 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 the best character dynamics at the very beginning of the film is that Sam's pissed at Michael for writing an article about it. Yeah. Um, which, okay, it's People Magazine, so the concept of journalistic integrity is probably loose. Because mm -hmm. um, he's right. I remember People Magazine. Those articles were short. Yeah. Those were not pro. I, I just got finished wa watching Inventing Anna, uh, and, and you see um, Vivian writing her article. And it's like this, like she did like months of interviews and research and background and stuff. And it's like, that's not what People Magazine was at all. You, know, <laughs> you, you read People Magazine while you were in the waiting room at the doctor's office. <laughs> yep, exactly. You know, when you, you knew you were an adult. You were getting older when you stopped going to highlights and went to People Magazine. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that is if they didn't have. And there's people listening to this now going, what's yeah, a magazine? Exactly. What, you don't sit there and scroll on your phone? <laughs> like. Sorry, we didn't we didn't do that back then, kids. No, no, no sweet yeah, summer so. time. <laughs> so, um, so when I was like I said, I watched this for the first time. I was about twenty one, twenty two years old, and um, I think I wrote off the whole thing with Kevin with with Harold sleeping with Meg as like weird hippie shit or something. I I, I did not yeah. get it. And I'm watching this again, and I'm watching that scene where Sarah's looking at him, and I'm hearing Meg say, "I want to, I want to be a mother. I don't need a husband to do it." Which is a pretty liberated attitude, even for that time. Um, nowadays, yeah. people there are plenty of people who you know who have children, and they they never actually you know had a husband or 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 a relationship with a man that you know etc um because i shouldn't say like married but you know what i mean there, there's no uh, and and i think if you if think if you played this today she would have asked harold to be a donor as opposed yeah. to sleeping with him um but ivf in it first of all ivf still crazy expensive having friends who went yes, through it, it it's it's very very expensive and it's not 100 percent guaranteed but the science has gone leaps and bounds in 40 years because I think only about five years prior to this, you had the first birth of what they would refer to at the time as a test tube baby. Oh, there's a term I haven't heard. Yeah. In and I want to, I want to say that's like 78 ish or, or in the very late seventies, but it, uh, it isn't 70. So the science for, I've interviewed for fertilization was not where it is now. So the idea that for the practical thing of it, she, where she's thinking practically, she's like one of these guys in here is who I'm going to sleep with. Um, 
and she propositions Sam. And like I said, in the, in the summary, he's like, it's, it's too much of a responsibility. He has an, he has a kid from an estranged former or an estranged son. Um, and, uh, she, you know, Nick obviously can't, um, Michael's again, <laughs> this is like, no, um, but he tries oh, yeah. and he, 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 he's just like, I, 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 she'll, you know, he, when should they get to that third quarter? He wants an answer. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's kind of, it, it's played for laughs and, and go bloom sells it for the laughs. And, and I appreciate that because, in the hands of any other character, he comes off. He's smarmy, but you're right. He's charming. In any other actor's hands, he's just simply creepy. Yeah, because because I, 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 I've had many friends in my life that are just kind of just like a little on the wow side, but they have a charm about them that draws you to them anyways. It's, it's weird. Now I, I remember getting to, I had the exact same thing when I was, I, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, like, God, that's a bunch of tree hugging hippie crap. <laughs> uh, but I was just like, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a, I could never even conceive of being married and having my wife go, you know, our friend wants to have a kid, you know, go, <laughs> You, you, you got clearance to land, but here it doesn't feel like she's like, okay, I had my affair. This is him getting his chance. It doesn't feel like that. No. Um, but it does feel like, you know, I, Meg wants this. We're all really good friends. Harold's a really good guy. And I know he's not going to leave me afterwards because there's that funny thing the next morning where she's like, you don't have to look so happy, but she's not angry. <laughs> she's kind of sarcastic. She's, she's more like just giving yeah. him shit. And the awkwardness of them, of him coming into the room or her coming to the room in the robe there's nothing sexy about this scene. She she says the morning after, I feel like I got a really good, great deal on a used car. <laughs> and I love that line. And I'm, I'm yeah. watching that scene. And it's 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 a very nice scene, actually, the way it's shot. You know, it's shot in a very typical 80s sex scene where they're both under the covers and there's really nothing showing. Yeah. But it's meant to be it's not meant to be salacious and it's not to, meant to be some sort of fantasy. It, it's, it's shown in a very, but affectionate way. Yeah. They're yeah. friends. It's like, it's like, this isn't passion. This isn't, you know, two people scragging on the front yard, barely out of their yeah. clothes. <laughs> My, I mean, it's the jeans. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's the <laughs> like, jeans that bother me on that. Chafed. There's so much goddamn chafing <laughs> on that. Um, but here, but when I watched it, I was like, okay, that, that would never mm. be me. But I could totally see this happening and being like a reasonable option. Like, like it's complicated. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it also like, he's going to, we don't know what happens because the film Ebert's right. The film just kind of mm. ends. And I think that last line, it, it, it felt like, Okay, Kasdan didn't know how to end the film, so he just left on the best last line that he mm. wrote. <laughs> but but I like how it ends with the lack of resolution 
because you are just getting a snapshot of these people yeah. and we don't need to we don't need the american graffiti you know so and so died in a car crash or whatever you know, the whole you happen or saw... or the animal house thing we don't and you know it just or, it, it 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 just ends and or the end of stand by <laughs> me or uh or uh sand sandlot i saw a great uh tiktok the other day of somebody making fun of those mm-hmm. like see you around man see you when i see you and like terrible things kept happening with the in the narration, and all the friends were like, "What the hell, man!" But but it nailed that aesthetic of you watch the end of these films, and like you have to get what happened to them. I don't need to know what happened to yeah. these people. I never need to see these people again. I got a very nice little, like you said, it's a snapshot into their lives. We get as enough backstory that we actually give a shit about the characters. And then, like, at the end, they're all leaving to go and lead their normal lives. And when you're an adult, that's what that's happens. True. You, you, <laughs> there's only, if, if you're 35, 36, 37, you, or you're 40, a number of these people have children. A lot mm-hmm. of, almost all of them have a very established job to make a big life decision over a weekend like that and then have something kind of go off in a completely different direction, everything's changed. It takes a lot more logistics, really. But there's so much more at stake than mm-hmm. when if these characters were 25. Yeah. And, you know, you were mentioning the other films that you've been covering in this Mm -hmm. series and really both. uh, I I think American Graffiti and Dazed and Confused have the same DNA. Mm -hmm. It's just two very different generations. Um, This is basically seeing the people from American Graffiti in the 80s. Yeah, it's 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 a spiritual sequel in a way that the actual sequel to American graffiti, like it's, it's, it's much more of a, a, a better fit because more American graffiti. Yeah. Uh, Rob and I talked about it briefly. It's not a particularly good movie. This is kind of a, like I said, this is essentially the sequel to that movie and it works really, really well because Kasdan, Kasdan knows what he has and he knows, he knows how to show it to us. And, and and that's the thing is that I, I don't think Lawrence Kasdan gets enough credit for being a guy that can write like like the reason why. And it's nothing against Lee Brackett. I'm not trying to say she didn't have anything to do with The Empire Strikes Back. But let's face it. I love Star Wars to death. I think uh, uh, the the first Star Wars, which now I guess we have to call a new. No, hope. we don't. Uh, and I'm not no, saying I'm sorry. No, uh, it's it's one of the few hills I will die on. All right. Okay. It's Star Wars. You can call it a new hope all you want. I'm calling it Star Wars. That's one of them. The other hill is that raisins don't belong in baked goods. All right. I'm going to die on that yeah, hill. And these are two I'm hills. I disagree with you on or the raisin thing. Than oh, the Star ask Wars Stella thing. about me and the raisin thing. It's been a long time. No, I, 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 the next time I see her, I will. I, I just have to. I, I'm just saying that I will punch a, someone in the face if they try to take my wife's oatmeal raisin cookies away from me. Um, but anyways, <laughs> 
But the reason why Empire works as well as it does is because the writing is so good. And, you know, Indiana Jones, okay, it's a little creepy when you start doing the the, the math on the age of Marion. But still, the reason why you like him and like all these characters is that they're really fleshed out. Silverado, um, I forget which comic book writer that I actually like hates that movie and doesn't really consider it a Western. I love that movie, but it's because all of the characters are written so well. And, and when you look at this one, this isn't larger than life. This isn't a Western. This isn't a space opera. This isn't high adventure serial action with a boulder yeah. coming after a guy. It's it's so human, though I will appreciate, and I don't know if Kevin Klein did it and they just kept it in or he was told to do it, oh, him humming the Indiana Jones theme. Uh, one shows, wow, that film was at the zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, but two, it's it's like the like they could have talked about Star Wars because they would have all seen mm-hmm. it. Um, but just him like going to fight the bat, uh, which yeah. is hilarious. Um, and I do love that it's, it's probably the most understated bit of comedy in the film. He tells her he's, he's about to tell her that he's impotent. And then you hear her scream and you think, Oh my God, what did he say to her? And it's the bat. Yeah, it got stuck in the room. I was just like, "That's freaking yeah, hilarious!" And Kevin Klein going up, it's really dorky and um and and it's endearing. Um, yeah, this is this is a little bit before the age of the pop culture conversation in the movie type of thing. Yeah, we. I mean, obviously, Kevin Smith would really bring that about in a big way. In, in movies like Clerks and Morats and stuff. Um, I was just thinking The Lost Boys has a lot of that in it as well. You know... There's a lot of comic book <coughs> talk in a, in a time when there wasn't a lot yeah, of comic book talk. Yeah, and then... And, and you'd have it among child characters, but, child, but, but among adults, you didn't have a lot of that and it would come out. But you're right. But I was also thinking about how... Um, you know, there, there's a lot of what I what I love about this movie is how well they do the dinner scenes or the food or the or the mm-hmm. the sitting around and eating and stuff because again, it's just I think well, they're getting takeout at one point, they're eating like a turkey at one point, and it's just kind of again everything flows really well. And when Kasdan can, he just lets the can- camera just sit there and lets it play out, mm-hmm. um, which is why I like the last shot of the movie, because it's just them in the kitchen and, and, and everything. But one of my favorite moments, and this has to do with the music, and we'll segue into the soundtrack in a minute, is the morning montage of them all getting coffee set to the weight by the band, which is one of my favorite songs. Yeah. I love that montage. It's just so great. And it ends with Jeff Goldblum looking at, I can't remember who's, I think it might be Sarah. He's like, are we the first ones up? Yeah. I love the fact that there's a running gag of him always being, except for the last morning. (laughs) He's like, he's like the last one to get up and her going, well, you would get, you would see more if you got up early (laughs) enough and you just get a sense that this is just this guy's life. Um, yeah, the soundtrack of this, it's its like one of those things where I think, you know, my mom loved it because it was the music of mm-hmm. her 
her youth. Uh, and my and my dad loved the soundtrack too. Yeah. But I think it's where like my love of oldies music really came from, of it just being one of the things that was played in the mm. car. <laughs> yeah. This soundtrack, Stand By Me, is another one from this decade that got played in the car a lot. And Dirty Dancing, I think, is the third one that I can mm-hmm. think of that had a lot of... Now, Dirty Dancing also had contemporary music on it because it had... Uh, I've Had the Time of My Life. It had that Patrick Swayze song, She's Like the Wind, and it had an Eric Carmen song, uh, Hungry Eyes. But it also had, like, Sylvia and Mickey and, you know, uh, all this. Yeah. Um, so this has... This was put out by Motown Records because most of the songs are Motown songs. This is the first soundtrack. And then I'll, I'll get into the more American graffiti. Not more. Different movie. More different movie. More music from the big chill. Um... I heard it through the grapevine, my girl, good loving, the tracks of my tears, joy to the world, which of course is Jeremiah was a bullfrog, ain't too proud to mm-hmm. beg, you make me feel like a natural woman, um, which by the way, its use is in the, um, I think it's a little on the nose when they use that. Yeah, that that was like. Uh, uh, They didn't just hang a lantern. He lit the entire (laughs) set on fire. Uh, I second that emotion, (laughs) a whiter shade of pale by a Procol Harum, and then tell him by the exciters are the, are the songs of the first one. Um, Funny enough, just because this was a soundtrack that there was a soundtrack that everybody had in the mid nineties, which was the Forrest Gump soundtrack. My girl and uh, joy to the world are on that as well. Um, and then on the more music one, it's a little less Motowny. I think Motown still put it out, but you have a Bad Moon Rising by CCR. Wouldn't it be nice by the Beach Boys? It's the same old song by the Four Tops. When a Man Loves a Woman by uh, Michael Bolton. No, I mean Percy Sledge. <laughs> um, I celebrate the guy's entire catalog. Uh, Dancing in the Street by Martha <laughs> Reeves and the Vandellas. What's Going On by Marvin Gaye in the Midnight Hour. Uh by the Rascals, which maybe they couldn't get the rights to the Wilson Pickett song, because that to me, that's a Wilson Pickett song. Steve Miller Band's Quicksilver Girl, Give Me Some Lovin' by the Spencer Davis Group, which is played during the football scene. Um, that's another song I love off of these soundtracks. Too Many Fish in the Sea by the Marvelettes, if I can read my own handwriting, and The Weight by the band. So those are the 20 or 21 tracks and oh not in the movie not on the soundtrack but in the movie of course is and apparently if you've seen high fidelity it gets disqualified from a list because of its involvement with this movie you can't always get what you want by the rolling stones it's played toward the beginning of the movie because they end the funeral by having karen play the organ yeah, she, she plays the organ, it, and, it, and it goes and, into and the she song. Plays it, she goes into playing the song, and I love how everybody in the room starts smiling. I was like, it, it just, I was like, the the, the 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 smirks of recognition on their faces that it's just this kind of like he's gonna play this. They're gonna get them to play the stones of the church and this preacher who's like this Baptist preacher and stuff like that. And I, I love its use in this movie. I love that song. So I, I do, yeah. I do love the way it is, is used, even if it is, you know, this is a uh, rock and or roll in a church. That, that, um, that was on the hot rocks, uh, double yes. album, greatest hits. That was uh, another album that was, 
frequented on trips to Maryland mm-hmm. and Virginia when I was a kid. Um, so, no, I just I think I've told you this before. Um, I don't know if it was on air or off air, but from like 1991 to 1992, I listened to nothing but the oldie station before I got on a country mm. kick. And because of that, and I think it's because of one, my parents, um, we weren't like the type to sit around listening to albums, but both my parents to a large extent liked music. Um, my mom was, uh, my mom would latch on to things like she, she fell in love with the traveling Wilburys, uh, in a huge way. Um, and the, uh, and Paul Simon's Graceland was another, uh, contemporary album that we that would was listen to. Rotation in my house too. Oh God, Jesus, you couldn't get away from it. Um, but I, I think it was, this is where I fell in love with like three dog mm. night. Um, and, uh, you know, between this and the moonlighting taming of the shrew episode, good lovin' is just one of my favorite songs as well. So I think that's another reason why I liked watching the movie so much is that the soundtrack was just, I'm so glad they locked up the rights, um, ahead of time because there are, there are TV shows that have very specific songs to them. I mean, quantum leap was one of them. Um, Cold Case apparently was a nightmare there for a while. Yeah, because they used to do um, entire episodes centered around certain artists' songs or certain mm-hmm. albums, from what I remember. Including a Rocky Horror mm. episode with Barry Bostwick in the guest cast, which I thought was a kind of a nice little, yeah. uh, nice little touch. But no, it's, it, it just having it start with I think that's uh, Lawrence Cashton's kid. Yes, uh, I think I, play. Yeah, I don't know if it's Jake or not, but yeah, it is one of his kids. But uh, you know, singing badly, which is endearing because yeah. he's a kid uh, singing. You know, Joy to the World, like a little kid would. I mean, when I was a little kid, I loved The Gambler. <laughs> The Gambler was on the Muppet oh, show. Oh yeah, Tom. I remember all the Kenny Rogers stuff. Just, yeah. Uh but so so it was kind of endearing, but it was just also like I hate to say this and 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 I'm not trying to bring the show down. I'm coming up on the 30th anniversary of losing mm. my mom. So this was kind of a nice thing to revisit to kind of give me like a really positive like happy memory. Of driving around right when we moved to Allentown, and I don't know if she had a tape of it or made a tape of it, but I know we had the album. We had the, yeah. the LP because um, we were a record family, damn it, um, until the teenagers started buying tapes yeah. uh, <laughs> and then making mixtapes because, of course, we did. Uh, <laughs> we I had know. no choice. It was it was our code. Um but yeah, just listening to Three Dog Night and listening to the to the Stones, and I think it's because of the opening of "Give Me Some Lovin'" that makes the the football scene yeah. work so well. Because it's got that nice little instrumental thing right at the beginning, and it doesn't go right in. I mean, it's not like a Steinman <laughs> song where you're a minute thirty before you hit the first verse. Uh, but it's almost like like I don't know if it was Kasdan that put it together. It's, it, it's the opposite to me of the outsiders. Cause I don't know if you've ever seen the director's cut. of the No, outsiders. I haven't. I've only seen the original theatrical release. 
So Coppola wanted to put contemporary music in it. Hmm. And he did that with the director's cut. And I think it almost ruins the movie because it wasn't part of the original cut. Whereas this is, this was baked in from the, from, from the jump. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's just like, Hey, what are all our favorite songs? Let's try to get as many yeah. as we can. Let's make a deal with Motown. But at the same time, this wasn't an era where like you, where you would put out the soundtrack for a movie and it would be almost bigger than the movie. Uh, that would come a little bit it, later. It happened because, yeah, because I mean, we are at the start of the golden era of soundtracks in this. Um, mm-hmm. But it would have been into the nineties. We had a few movies where the soundtrack was enormously bigger than the movie. <laughs> I present to you and the crow. Em- I pre- and Empire <laughs> Records and Reality yeah. Bites. Yeah, the crow. And Reality yeah, and Bites. There's just, like- and those are like the signature soundtracks of like our particular generation. Um, this was a huge movie with a huge soundtrack, which is interesting because it, it's not a dark movie. But no, the the soundtrack is a lot more peppy in other places and things like that. And you latch onto it kind of in the same way that Saturday night fever has this disco soundtrack with staying alive and all the Bee Gees music and everything. That movie's dark. Oh God. Yeah, the end of that movies. film. I remember watching it as a teenager yeah. on HBO going, wait a second. What? Yeah. What? I, I, I covered it. What? Episode 75. I think it was. Um, and yeah, that movie is dark, but it has like the soundtrack, right. And it has certain things Mm -hmm. and, and, um, this movie is, uh, is very sad in places and a little bit gloomy in places. Um, but it has, and it has this great soundtrack. I, it also speaks to, I, I grew up with, um, my parents, we weren't yelling at them to try to turn on the top 40 station, or the or the more kid friend the more parent friendly top forty station that sort of mix whatever we call it. Um, they they listen to way too much light FM. I've I've had I've done the episode before. Yeah, the, the yeah, softacular. Soft I, I remember uh, it well. <laughs> w Neil Daly gets on my case about like quoting um, uh, mentioning radio stations in the episodes I do with him and Ryan because I grew up listening to the radio. You know, we grew up. How we had albums. What is there? What is Steel oh, he, Daily's he's problem? Just me, he's just giving that. me a hard time, but but because okay. it was just kind of this thing where we when we were doing the covers episode, and he was just like, you know, hey, you bring up the radio station because I kept doing it. But we would listen to my mom would listen to WCBS FM one hundred one point one out of New York with cousin Brucey, and so I almost got like an education on like the history of pop music <laughs> at least through up until the maybe the mid 70s or something um their record collection was a bit subpar i have to admit i mean nothing i i'm not a big glenn campbell person and i do not like streisand um i do have my mom's old copy uh, they they got rid of the records years ago so i snagged a few among them two beatles albums and a mama's and the papa's album that was worth getting but um, but they listen. Yeah, but and this is something about the boomers that, you know, they write as a generation. Baby boomers rightfully get a lot of shit. <laughs> but yes, I can appreciate the fact that 
the byproduct of their nostalgia throughout the 80s and into the 90s was that I learned a lot about older stuff that I don't mm-hmm. think I think only to a certain extent kids get from their parents these days. There's a lot of ways kids and teenagers can be really insular about their pop culture where they're they're not you know some of my students really do get into like so you're gonna feel a dad's music which is like nirvana you know and stuff but a lot of them are just kind of in the i'm just gonna stick with taylor swift or olivia rodrigo and and everything else is is crap and you're just like oh you sweet summer child let me sit well, down it's, as, it's, or as it's, my wife said oh then are you gonna take you're gonna give me that nirvana shirt you bought at target <laughs> it's like, well to be fair yeah. tom one, we were weird, and two, That's we were true. outliers. That's true. Um, there were plenty of kids I knew that had, you know, that were just into the contemporary pot. There was way too many white kids into hip hop in my high school. Yeah, me too. Um, of course, there were way too many white kids <laughs> in my high school. Too. Uh, to to be <laughs> fair, uh, but um, you know, and there were the guys that were like into the into the pop country mm-hmm. of the time and stuff. There there was hardly anybody that was really into older stuff. Uh, and then there was my friend Eric who was just into Black Forty Seven and things. And Maria's he was, wedding. He man. was the one that uh, he was the one that bought Pretty Hate Machine before uh, Nine Inch Nails really mm. hit big. And I remember him popping it into my my car and I'm like, eh, I don't know how I feel about this. And then a couple of years later, I loved it. Uh, but I was weird like that. So uh, I, I, I think there, the one thing that you're absolutely right about though, is that the eighties, this movie is endemic of the eighties obsession with the sixties. Yes. Um, like the seventies was all about the fifties for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Shauna and Shana-na. American Graffiti. Happy Days. Even though American Graffiti takes place in it's, 1962, it's, it's it's the it's the 50s hangover. It's the end of the 50s hangover. Yeah. Yeah, because because and I was I was I was working on something for something else I'm working on, and I'm just like you know decades don't start on day yeah. one of that decade. Uh, there is always a political or, or or pop culture or in the case of the 2000s mm-hmm. world event that shapes everything that comes later and i think in a weird way because reagan got elected and made america feel good about itself again to a mm-hmm. large extent I think it was okay to then go, well, let's talk about this, the stuff from when we were in high school and, and college and stuff that made us happy. Uh, and, I, and I think that's why, but this film sits kind of above all of that. Cause we're not yet at the depressing Vietnam films. No, we've already had apocalypse now and the deer hunter, but and coming home, and that's the first wave of them. But we're a few years away from Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, um, or the one you covered on uh, In Country. With oh, Bruce it's called In Country. It was episode fifty. Oh, yeah, I yeah. deliberately covered yeah. it for episode fifty. Yeah, which is a really good movie. If you, if you, uh, I recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. 
but you're right. It's it's before but, uh, like, the sad, depressing Vietnam movies. <laughs> I just I just remember a Gallagher special called "Stuck in the Sixties." Mm-hmm. Uh, the mamas and the papas still get to me. I, I bear. I have like weird, specific uh, memories of the song that he sang at the beginning of it. And I think this film, though, is a good example of how you do it without getting lost in the nostalgia. Like, it's a wash in it, but at no point does anybody sit there and pine for the old days. In fact, they openly question, did we even mean the crap that we said? which is incredibly mature. And I think the music is a huge part of the nostalgia factor of it because it's the music. I mean, you see them going through records, yeah. uh, which why are they just leaving records in the guest I house? Don't... I'm really confused about the living situation. Tom, Cause I don't, is that there? That was, that was or... a little confusing. I got the sense. I was like, is this their house? I know that they own the property you know, out in, um, you know, the, that Alex was fixing up. It was kind of like a, almost like a cabin or a small thing. Mm-hmm. My best explanation is this is akin to owning a house like on the outer banks that you rent out to beachgoers and you stay in yourself every once in a while. Like it's a summer house. Okay. I mean, it's a huge freaking summer house, but I get the feeling that this is their primary home. So when you have those, because I've rented a house in the Outer Banks before, and when you have them, they're, they come completely furnished, and they've got stacks of movies next to the TV and you know things like mm-hmm. that. So the fact that some of the stuff would be in there, yeah, tracks if you think along those lines. Um, if we're going to no-prize it anyway. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was just uh, – it was – I'm really glad we did this. Yeah, I am too. Cause, cause literally right as I, like last Sunday, I finished mm-hmm. this and I immediately watched Peter's friends, which is a 1992 uh-huh. film written by Rita. Oh, Rudner, really? By the, and yeah, Rita Rudner. And I think Kenneth Branagh wrote that film. Um, and it's a very similar vibe to this movie. It's a bunch of friends 10 years after graduating college getting together and, you know, kind of, no, it's much more dramatic. Mm -hmm. There are arguments. (laughs) Um, And it has a, and it has a very particular vibe to it. That's similar to this. And I'm not saying Peter's friends, bad, chill, good, because Peter friends has Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh. And right away that makes it a film worth watching. Uh, So, but it's, it's it's a way of like, you know, looking at this and it's not like a specific genre. It's just like like re, friends reunion. It's like a subgenre, like, I guess we could call it, yeah. Yeah. Cuz you know, you were comparing it to like Gross Point Blank and I think Gross Point Blank is more of a it's a it's a, a reunion. reunion. But it's not like he was getting he went there to get together no. with all his old friends. He went there very reluctantly. <laughs> and it and it's 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 like it kind of reminds me of when I went to my 20th high school reunion, but we all didn't get together as one large group. I like went and saw everyone like Mm. individually, which I don't know if that was better or worse, but yeah, 
Yeah, I missed I missed mine only because I was on a family vacation when they had it. So, um, but my friend said, you know, I met with a friend, a couple of friends after that, and uh, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to thirty if if we actually have it. Um, there's another movie I will reference. I haven't seen it. I can. I think it's available for rental either on Apple or Amazon. Um, that came out prior to this. It was directed by John Sales. The Return of the Secaucus Seven, and it gets com- this movie and that movie gets compared because it's essentially the same premise. Uh, from what I read when they asked Sales about that, he mentioned that um, the characters in his movie are a little bit more for lack of a better term, working class than college educated or something. So there's a, I, so I, I actually am going to go watch the movie when I get the chance. Cause I, I it's oh. on my to watch list. And uh, if I can find it again, I, I had found it and I, I lost it. Um, but yeah, so I, I'd be curious to see this. Somebody try this type of movie again. There were a lot of movies in the eighties that became the sit around and talking movies or the friends gather that got referred to as the little chill um, some of them had teenagers in it, like the breakfast club or like St. Elmo's fire gets kind of this little chill label slapped on it. Even though that movie is, um, <sighs> that movie is so fucking cheesy and it's so bad and it's so wonderful. And I, I covered it years ago. I, I, I don't know if I would call it bad. I think it, one, it was directed by Joel yeah. Schumacher who is criminally underrated as a director. I, I watched cousins the Ted other Anson day. Movie? Uh, with Ted Danson and Isabella Rossellini and William Peterson and uh, Sean Young. And I remember that was a film that was in heavy rotation on HBO. That hits a lot different as an adult, too. But, yeah, I think St. Elmo's Fire was more of the friends group right after college when none of them had their shit together. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and so I'd be kind of curious as to what you would do with our generation because, like I said, you could do this movie. I mean – you wouldn't have to change much about this, about the premise or the or the plot of the movie to do this type of movie now um, or write it. It's not like it's not like this. This movie doesn't feel dated in the sense that a lot of other movies from this era do. And I think it's because I mean, for all the reasons we already mentioned, um, but there's a there's a really good simplicity to what you're doing with this movie that that makes it work and makes it timeless. Yeah, it's 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 a little depressing though to think that we're now like at the thirty year mark of so much uh, of of the touchstones of our teenage and young adult yeah. years. And when you really think about it, it would be more of like us all getting together, not literally us. I mean, we could write yeah. it, but still, um, us all getting together, like when the kids are getting ready to mm-hmm. leave. Uh, and then you have like the couples that never had kids and they're on a completely different path and all that. It's just the thing that you have to do with it though, is you, and I was dead serious when I said there is so much nuance in this film that you have to play it just right. Or it does turn into the, we're just going to have a big screaming Mm -hmm. match towards the middle of the third act before everybody makes yeah. up and we all sit around listening to uh, Jesus Christ, jagged little pill. I mean, are uh, some R with the soundtrack, some, some Mary J. Blige, maybe yeah. some En Vogue, you know, yeah. turn of the Mac. I mean, <laughs> Hadaway. I mean, if, 
Wait, if it's your wife, it's going to be nothing. It's going to be R&B and hip hop. Okay. I'm the one with all the grunge and the punk. We cross over a little bit. So that yeah. we have a really good collection. That's why I like listening to your wife, by the way, because she was on such a different musical track. Me too. Than I like, was. like, I think we had it in the last episode we talked about very briefly because Dazed and Confused was one of the few CDs that overlapped in our collection. And I think it's Stone Temple Pilots and a little bit of Green Day and that's about it. <laughs> like we, we had totally different, the reality Bites <laughs> soundtrack was another one, but it was, we had totally different tastes, but it, it's, it's kind of cool that way because now we have an enormous collection of music that um, goes. Well, and, and to be fair, a lot of that stuff was to, to quote Wayne's world was issued oh, yeah. to us. I mean, I think everybody, everybody owned the crow soundtrack. Yeah. Everybody did. And it was, it was, I think an introduction to not only goth aesthetics to the norms, but I think it was a, it was kind of a, a, a like that harder edge of grunge. Yeah. Um, that it, it's, it's like it and singles sit on like the alpha and the omega of that type yeah. of thing. Yeah. And then, um, God, I could go to a whole rabbit hole about this. I remember talking to my yeah. friend, yeah. you know, we want to talk about how you got your music. And I, when I interviewed my friend Chris about his band's album in his 25th anniversary a couple of years ago, we talked about how there was like this scene in our town where there were a lot of these punk bands that formed in high school. And part of it was because of older kids who had access to in some the Ramones, uh, I think in a bit in a big way. And the Ramones were kind of, not mainstream, mainstream, but mainstream enough that a lot of us knew them. But I knew kids in eighth grade and seventh grade who were walking around with like dead Kennedy's logos on their stuff. And yeah. so they, they had somebody had given them this stuff, a lot of like so a lot of the hardcore stuff. So it's just kind of interesting. Again, that's a whole exploration you could do is like who got you into the music that you got into or where did you get it from? And I think part of it being with this to bring it back to the big chill absorbing some of this from my parents, you know, and, and seeing what they had or, or hearing what they listened to and just picking up on the stuff that I rec began to recognize after a while and, and really, really liked. Um, and then I, I think that this is a movie that if I were to give this to a teenager or 20 something like I was, I don't think they'd understand it fully either, but at 46, no. it hits a lot harder and you're right it just it seems very real and I, I think that's the strength of the movie it's okay and this is something Hollywood needs to understand it's okay to make a movie for an older audience yeah and it's funny it's it's <coughs> almost like weird that animation just tries to hit the the four the four boxes mm -hmm. of, of, of trying to appeal to every generation sometimes obnoxiously sometimes yeah. not um and it seems like your more indie films or your more like Netflix Netflix films, uh, for lack of or or Amazon yeah. Prime movies, they're trying to be very mm -hmm. arty in a way that, and this is probably going to make perfect sense to you and some members of the audience. It's like when you went to the independent movie theater in the '90s and saw trailers for movies that you didn't normally see trailers yes. for. It feels like everything's trying to be that. The, the movies that you would see before the Miramax film you rented. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. The, yes. you, uh, you're like, <laughs> um, 
you know, we we always we all saw they were what is this interest this little movie and stuff and some of them have aged well and some of them have aged horribly. And I think that's going to happen with a lot of these movies, these indie movies that are on streaming. Some of them are just <laughs> 10 years from now. They're well, not going to, they're going to be kind of embarrassing. I think it's just because most like filmmakers of the nineties were, were chasing, especially in the later nineties seemed to really like super hardcore chasing the Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino yeah. kind of vibe. Uh, not, not like, you know, Killing Zoe, which is probably one of the biggest Tarantino ripoffs ever. Movie. It is a weird movie. Uh, but I'm like thinking of that one with like Robert Sean Leonard was in it. And I saw the trailer like a thousand times where he's dancing with women. Uh, I forget what the movie's called, but it's just you could. Oh, I'm going to shock you, uh, Tom. <laughs> Gen X is completely underrepresented in a, as a, uh, as a, a, you would think that we are being uh, played to, but we're not, we're really not. Get my fainting couch. <laughs> yeah. I was, I, I, you know, it's just like, cause now the millennials are turning 30. Oh, they're turning 40, man. And, yeah. And Mo- they're turning millennial- 40. And, you know, my, millennials my wife, hitting their midlife my is, is, is one of the most hilarious things on TikTok. Yeah, no, it really is. Um, uh, just on all levels, it's kind of amusing to watch. There's a there's a there's a TikToker I follow who has uh, who does the Gen X update um, that I love, where she does like news items, but from a Gen X perspective. And they're not going to make this film with us. They're going to make this oh, film yeah. with millennials. Oh yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, anyway. Um, this, but dude, yeah, thank you so yeah. much. For so this movie you. is you can find it on streaming. I think you said you watched it on Pluto mm-hmm. or Tubi. It is off, it Pluto, off Pluto now. now. Uh, it is now behind paywalls. Uh-huh. But guys, running an Amazon yeah. film is like funny four enough. Bucks. I actually had because because every once in a while when I get a package from Amazon, I click the kind of like I don't need this right away button, so I get like a dollar credit, and I've had a massed amount of that that I had a free rental. So I rented it on Amazon, and and the the streaming transfer looks good. It was put out on Blu-ray a few years ago, I believe. I, I don't I don't you know obviously only have the VHS, but it is widely available. It's it's not a hard to find movie, and I do recommend going and watching it. The only problem with watching movies on Pluto and those types of services is they put the commercials in the weirdest mm-hmm. damn place. You know, it's, it's I just missed Channel Eleven. I guess is yeah, what I'm it's, saying. Because they knew where. Yeah, to put it, it is. It is almost watching Pluto is almost like watching uh, watching it on cable, like on on syndicated TV back yeah. in the day, and and such. Yes. So, uh, before I let you go, uh, let everybody know where they can find you. For right now, everything is still at thefortressofbailey2.com. dot com. Uh, very shortly, depending on how my upcoming life upheaval is happening. Um. I am going to be transferring a bunch of stuff to Lipson because doing it the way I've been doing it is just such a giant pain in the ass. And I just want to put stuff out and have people listen to it. And Lipson's pretty cheap. But for right now, FortressOfBailey2.com, From Crisis to Crisis, Overlook Dark Knight, um, almost 300 episodes of stuff with the views in the title. Um, 
many of those with Tom mm-hmm. on them where we just sit there and discuss stuff from the 90s, which is going to shock everybody listening to this. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I am going to take another break. Uh, when I get back, I have some listener feedback, so stick around. And we're back. I'd like to thank Mike for coming on and talking about the big chill with me. Um, you know, we'd been meaning to do the episode for a long time. I think I'd talked about it maybe a year or two ago. And uh, I was really happy that we finally got to do that. I had a great time talking with him. I mean, I always have a great time talking about stuff with Mike, but uh, it is it is always a pleasure. So uh, check out his shows and... Um, all of his stuff, he's got some great stuff going on, especially over the Overlooked Dark Night. And uh, before I go, I do have an email. This one is about the Balticon episode, as the subject says, and it's from Professor Allen, he of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. He writes in, Tom, I always enjoy your Balticon episode. Me and M had some good times back there around 2016, 2018, including hanging out with you and Brett. Good memories and fun times. Love Time Warp. I'm still missing issue one issue from my collection. Uh, likewise, Alan, I'm still missing issue number three, I believe. And um, I recently was at my LCS, and I got a, I think... DC did like a series of modern up one shot updates of these old bronze age, uh, horror and sci-fi sh- series, because I have one from ghosts that I had signed. Um, I think by Amy reader, maybe I'm blanking on, on who it was, uh, last year, last year, two years ago. And, um, I found one that they did for Time Warp recently. I think I paid like a buck ninety nine for it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading through that. Anyway, um, he says, I hope you read Skull Kickers. Personally, I'm enjoying the title's combo of fantasy action and humor. And I did enjoy what I saw. I did find it for 99 cents and a cheap bin of Skull Kickers, like 10th anniversary special. And I might go ch- uh, seek it out and trade and stuff. Uh, Brett seemed to like it as well. He said, and you are so right about using analog modes for conventional prep, including that old-fashioned stuff called paper. And holy smokes, Brett is starting to really sound like you. Yikes. Yeah, I was editing that show, and there was a point where I couldn't tell which one of us was talking for a moment. They really are sounding like me. It is getting a little scary. Uh, They're going to be a senior next year. In fact, we just did a college visit this past weekend as I'm recording it. And I don't know how ready I am for all this, but it was, it was fun. It was a fun college visit. We didn't have to go too far away. We went 10 minutes down the road to our local university. Uh, it happens to be the university of Virginia. So it's not like it's a no name school. Anyway, Alan says great, great episode. Keep up the good work. Uh, thank you very much, Alan. And if you have any, uh, anything to say about any of the episodes, please feel free to write in or send me um, 
anything your way over the socials. Speaking of the socials, I've got two things. First of all, something I keep forgetting to mention over uh, because it's not in the outro, which I probably should re-record. That outro is like a couple of years old. Um, I am on Insta as Pop Culture Affidavit, but I'm also over on Blue Sky. Um, I am at popaff, P-O-P-A-F-F, dot bsky, dot social. Um, so if you're a Blue Sky user, um, search popaff or search just my name and, uh, and, and follow me over there. I don't know how long I'm going to be on the Twitter or whatever the hell we're calling it now, or they're calling it now, because I'm not calling it now. Um, I've been a little less active on it, I mean, comparatively speaking. And I'm, I'm over, I've been trying to get more active on the Blue Sky account, because I feel that that's a little bit less of a, of a minefield of crap at the moment anyway. I'm sure it'll get ruined at some point. So follow me over there and follow me on Insta. Leave a review on iTunes. Uh, find me on, I'm still on Facebook. I still have the blog, uh, which I just wrote a blog post about, uh, boys will be boys. The 1988 Fox sitcom starring the late Matthew Perry. Uh, so check that out as well. Next episode, I have something in mind, but I need to get my ducks in a row. So I'm not going to tell you what it is, but humbly it is going to be out before Thanksgiving. And until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. And on Twitter at PopAff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Pop culture.